KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. After state authorities allowed an alleged sexual predator to job hop around nursing facilities, his case could be headed for a retrial. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A check of conditions at the border for migrants seeking asylum. Conditions for them, for for many of them, uh, went from uh, bad to worse. And SDG&E unveils its decarbonization roadmap, plus the rise and fall of a local record label. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. It's been two months since Tijuana evicted hundreds of asylum seekers from a makeshift migrant camp just south of the San Ysidro border crossing. Many of those migrants were pushed to the outskirts of town where they face the prospect of homelessness in a dangerous neighborhood. KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis has more. Rosa, who asked me not to use her last name, has been living in a constant state of terror. She and her two youngest children fled from their home in the Mexican state of Michoacán last year after members of a drug cartel stole her family's farm and kidnapped her oldest son. Now in Tijuana, Rosa still pays a monthly ransom of $60 a month to keep her son from being tortured. Rosa says that the cartel knows that she and her children are in Tijuana and she's terrified at the thought of being found. She's currently living in the outskirts of town, paying $150 a month to share a one-bedroom apartment with five other people. She's waited nearly a year for a chance to request asylum in the U.S. That delay is caused by Title 42, a public health order from the Trump era that limits access to asylum seekers. Rosa says she felt much safer living at El Chaparral, a makeshift migrant camp near the San Ysidro border crossing that was abruptly shut down by Tijuana authorities in February. For months, she lived in this tent community with hundreds of other asylum seekers, mostly from Mexico and Central America. She knew her neighbors, had access to social services, and could even work in nearby stores. Her new apartment is isolated and in a dangerous neighborhood. It takes her an hour to get to downtown Tijuana, where most of the jobs and social services are. Pedro Rios is an advocate with American Friends Service Committee. He says the living conditions in the camp were by no means ideal, but migrants were safer there than they are now. So conditions for them, for for many of them, uh, went from uh, bad to worse. He says the migrants have been left to fend for themselves in one of the most dangerous cities in Mexico. They're going through some serious uh, troubling situations where they don't have housing, they lack access to information, they are much more susceptible to being robbed or 
or being apprehended by the authorities. Rosa's neighbor is an Honduran woman named Darcy. She is also running from gangs and asked me not to use her last name. Like Rosa, Darcy used to live in El Chaperral. No tenemos trabajo. Es, hemos ido a buscar a fábricas, pero igual no aceptan extranjeros. Y pues nos toca vivir de la línea. Darcy says there's no work in this part of Tijuana. She's applied for jobs at several maquiladoras, but they don't hire foreigners. She lives off whatever money she can make, begging and washing cars at the long border wait lines. Running out of options, Darcy is left waiting for U.S. border policy to change. Esperando siempre. Siempre estamos con la ilusión de que nos van a decir, eh, ya necesitamos tal cosa para poder cruzar o qué sé yo. O alguna fecha, alguna esperanza, pues. Rosa and Darcy's frustrations have heightened over the last couple of weeks. The same border officials who used Title 42 to block their asylum in the U.S. have allowed hundreds of Ukrainian war refugees to enter the country. Rosa understands that the Ukrainians are fleeing a war, but she says that living in Michoacán is almost like living in a war zone. Me pregunto yo y le pregunto al, al gobierno, ¿que Michoacán no está en guerra? ¿O me van a decir que todo está bien? The U.S. Department of State currently has a level 4 travel advisory for Michoacán. It is the highest level and advises people to not travel there because of crime and kidnapping risks. The same thing that Rosa is fleeing from. After a year of waiting and living in constant fear, Rosa feels abandoned by both the American and Mexican governments. Ya un año y viviendo con este temor aquí en nuestro país y, y no, no darnos una respuesta es, es muy difícil y, y la verdad sí me siento olvidada por las autoridades. Joining me is KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. And Gustavo, welcome. Thank you, Maureen. Hello. So why did Mexican authorities shut down the El Chaparral border camp? The stated reason for shutting down the camp uh, was public safety, specifically dangerous living conditions for children. And no one really disagrees that the camp was not an ideal place for children. I mean, there were rumors of assaults and open drug use on a nightly basis. But the, the shutdown did come as a big shock to the people who lived in the migrant camp, mostly because the mayor of Tijuana had specifically said she would never shut it down and force people to leave. But clearly, now we know that she went back on that word. And even months later, the migrants still talk about the shutdown in, in, as a traumatic event. It began at 4 a.m. in the morning. They were woken up by police officers and soldiers. They thought they were going to be arrested. And the, the authorities basically said, hey, you have half an hour to grab your things. And if you don't, we're just going to throw everything away. And about how many people were displaced when the camp was shut down? Somewhere around 500. The, the camp fluctuated in population. I, at, at its peak, it was over 1,000, but it had uh, dwindled in size by then. In general, how are the asylum seekers treated in Tijuana? Are they seen as a problem? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, yes, uh, they're definitely seen as a problem. Uh, and that's not new in Tijuana, unfortunately. I remember covering in 2018 when the migrant caravan came, um, I covered an anti-migrant march and it got, it got pretty tense, not quite violent, but there was a tense confrontation between people of Tijuana who wanted the migrants out and the migrants who were just waiting to, to have a chance to cross the border. So is that animosity one of the reasons we heard that it's nearly impossible for the asylum seekers to find work? I think it, that's more of a logistical issue. I mean, Mexican nationals, the Mexican asylum seekers can find work if they have the right, the right paperwork, which is relatively easy for them to get. The problem with that is, well, obvious, right? They're fleeing 
they're, they're asylum seekers. They're afraid to live in their place of origin, which happens to be Mexico. So they just don't feel safe. I've talked to people from the interior of Mexico, states like Michoacán, who get texts on an almost daily basis from the same criminals that they're running from, saying like, hey, I know you're in Tijuana. I'm going to find you. Uh, for Central Americans and Haitians, it is harder to find work. Local government of Tijuana says they, they have work permits available, but they're really difficult to access. And now, because most of the migrants live far away from the downtown areas, it's very hard for them to get to the government office where they need to get the work permits. And, and nearly every migrant, whether they're even the, the ones from Mexico, say they face discrimination in Tijuana. Uh, also worth noting, though, that the people of Tijuana have been incredibly generous, helping with uh, donations, camps, uh, food, clothes, even some social services as well. And what kind of social services are available, let's say, to the two women you spoke with now that they've been moved to the outskirts of Tijuana? Well, right now, I'd I say none, you know, at least not in any accessible way. Um, Darcy, who's the woman from Honduras we talked about, has a really, really bad kidney infection. I mean, I did the interview uh, with her laying in bed. And you can kind of hear it in her voice how much pain she's going through. She hasn't left the house in days. And that's mostly because it's really hard for her to see a doctor. She'd have to take two public buses that cost $10, which for her is a lot of money. And the one time she did go to a doctor, they gave her pain pills and told her to go back if the pain continues. She doesn't know anyone who has a car, and it's really hard for her to go. And if she goes, who's going to take care of her two kids, right? Uh, It's night and day compared to the services they had at the camp. At the camp... Uh, nonprofits from San Diego would have legal workshops, um, you know, mental health services. Volunteers would help with kids. They would run art and music workshops for them. None of that is available now. All the migrants are just kind of spread out throughout Tijuana and feeling isolated and left to their own devices. Earlier this month, the Biden administration confirmed that Title 42 will be lifted in May. Is that giving new hope to asylum seekers at the border? A bit. I, I think I'd call it measured hope, right? They're obviously stoked to hear that news, and they're they're excited because Title 42 is the main reason that they've been blocked for over a year now to, to have a shot at asylum. But the the, the hesitancy to, to be really, like, purely hopeful is that they have no way of knowing how they're going to be processed or, or what that's going to be like, right? There's no wait list currently. Uh, or roster of migrants who have been waiting for a year. The federal government hasn't really announced a plan of how, where, when they plan to process the thousands of asylum seekers who have been waiting for months, if not years, to cross already. So they're they're just, like, they're happy, but they don't know what that means for them in real terms, right? There's no clear guideline to what will happen when it is finally lifted for them. I've been speaking with KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. Since 2020, KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma has been reporting about how local nursing homes have failed vulnerable residents. She has reported stories of senseless deaths, systemic failures, and alleged sexual assaults. After Amitha's stories about alleged sexual assaults of three nursing home residents by a caregiver were published, 
San Diego's DA got the investigative documents from three local nursing homes where the caregiver worked. In December 2020, the ex-caregiver, Matthew Flukiger, was arrested and charged. And late last month, a jury found him guilty on three, but not all counts. KPBS's Amitha Sharma joins me now with more on what's expected to happen next in this case. Amitha, welcome. Thank you for having me on, Jade. So remind us about Flukiger. What was he accused of? Flukiger was actually charged with four counts of a forcible lewd act upon a dependent adult by a caretaker. The fifth count was almost identical, but it didn't involve using force. And these were all related to three sexual assault cases that took place at three local nursing homes. One was at San Diego Post-Acute and Avocado Post-Acute Nursing Homes in El Cajon. And then there was Parkway Hills Nursing and Rehabilitation in La Mesa. Flukiger worked as a certified nursing assistant at all three of those nursing homes. And he was convicted last month. What did the jury find? So it was a mixed verdict, Jade. The jury found that Flukiger was guilty on three sexual assault charges for acts on the woman who lived at Parkway Hills. But the jury actually hung on whether Flukiger sexually assaulted two other women at those two remaining nursing homes, Avocado Post-Acute and San Diego Post-Acute. What do you know about why prosecutors might be retrying the case? Well, the prosecutor in the case is a man by the name of Josh Brisbane. He would not talk about the case, but the motivator in retrying the case has to be how close the jury's verdict was on the deadlocked charges. Eleven jurors said he was guilty. One of them disagreed. We don't know why this person disagreed. We do know that he was a man. We don't know what his issue was with the case. I think prosecutors are betting that if they take another stab at the case, they will get a guilty verdict. Do you know when the second trial might happen? I think that prosecutors are hoping to wrap up a trial by the end of the summer. In cases like this, it can be a little bit tricky. You don't want to wait too long because the victims are seniors. They're older and many of them are infirm. Mm. And what have you heard from the victims in response to the outcome of Flukiger's trial? Well, Jade, I haven't spoken to the victims since the verdict came in. Um, But I do know that after speaking to one of the lawyers for one of the victims, that one of them, Kathy Gotcher-Girolamo, who we first interviewed back in 2019, um, or I'm sorry, back in 2020, is very upset. She actually was upset that Flukiger wasn't arrested and charged immediately after she reported um, that he had sexually assaulted her. She never really understood how he was allowed to get a job just weeks after he allegedly sexually assaulted her at another nursing home where he went on to attack another woman or reportedly attack another woman. She didn't understand why she had to wait more than a year before he was arrested and charged. And then to have the jury now deadlock on the charge related to her case has has left her feeling um, very frustrated. 
I mean, have there been any safeguards put in place at these nursing homes uh, as a result of the findings of your investigation? Jade, I'm not aware of any safeguards. I can tell you that as it happened last week on another story that I'm working on, I happened to look at the complaints that were filed against Avocado last year on the California Department of Public Health's website. This is a public website that allows consumers to find out you know, what complaints have been filed by loved ones or residents at nursing homes. And last year alone, in 2021, this is two years after Kathy Gotcher-Girolamo said that a caregiver had sexually assaulted her at Avocado Post Acute. Last year at Avocado Post Acute, there were nine reported sexual assaults. So it really is not clear what safeguards have been put in place. I can also tell you that connected to the case against Flukiger, state regulators fined two of the nursing homes for violations related to how they handled the assault allegations. In one case, the California Department of Public Health fined Parkway Hills $16,000 for not screening job applicants for past abuse. They also fined Parkway Hills for not adequately monitoring behavior by its staff. And CDPH also find Avocado Post Acute $2,000 for failing to report Girolamo's sexual assault allegations immediately. As a nursing home, as employees working for a nursing home, you are mandated by law to report allegations of abuse immediately. Avocado Post Acute failed to do that in Kathy's case, in Kathy's allegations against Flukiger. And do you think the fines work as a deterrent at all? I don't know. And the reason I I say I don't know is that the owners of nursing homes make tens of millions of dollars. This is a very profitable business for them. They make tens of millions of dollars each year. So when you measure a $2,000 fine against tens of millions of dollars in profits, I don't know what kind of deterrent effect a fine like that has. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma. Amitha, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jade. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Just weeks before major cities in San Diego County switch consumers to community-based energy, San Diego Gas and Electric has released its decarbonization roadmap. The study outlines ways the utility could get 100% of its energy from carbon-free sources by the state-mandated date of 2045. The Path to Net Zero report projects a massive increase in energy from solar, wind, and battery storage, plus major changes in California's transportation and at-home energy usage. But it predicts the average cost of energy to consumers 
will remain roughly the same. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune energy reporter Rob Nikoleski. And Rob, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Maureen. So how does SDG&E predict its energy sources will change as they attempt to get to net zero carbon usage? Well, the study looks at both the San Diego region and also the state as a whole. In the San Diego Gas and Electric Service Territory, the electric sector's generation capacity, they expect to nearly double by 2045. Statewide in California, it's expected that the state will have to decarbonize at about four and a half times the current pace by 2045. And 2045 is important because that's the goal that the California policymakers have set to derive 100% of its electricity from non-carbon sources. So the study envisions a huge increase in consumer use of electricity from electric cars to appliances. How big of an increase? It's massive, Maureen. Statewide, the report says that every year, the state needs to add eight gigawatts of solar, two gigawatts of battery storage, and one gigawatt of wind energy. Now, in the San Diego Gas and Electric Service territory, it projects 3.4 million zero emission vehicles and 640,000 charging stations by 2045. By comparison, right now, we've got a little more than 100,000 zero emission vehicles and 7,000 charging stations. And natural gas, which of course is a fossil fuel, remains in this plan. How does that fit in with the push toward carbon-free energy sources? SDG&E still envisions natural gas in its system by 2045, but the volume they predict will decrease by about 65%. And the composition of the gas will be different. It will include hydrogen and renewable natural gas. Hydrogen is an element that can reduce greenhouse gas emissions when added to things like natural gas systems. Renewable natural gas includes biogas, and biogas is produced by organic waste like cow manure, dairies, farms, wastewater, treatment plants, and at landfills. And carbon capture is also part of the plan. Tell us about that. One possible route would be actively pulling carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. That's something that a number of companies have been working on. It's not finished yet. Another one is being able to capture emissions directly from industrial sites and power plants and finding places to sequester them. Now, why has SDG&E come out with this roadmap now? Is the state requiring it? No, the state didn't require it. Uh, SDG&E said they say they wanted to come out with a report that was very realistic in its projections. And in order to do that, they touted this report as being one that basically follows the same standards as the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, which is a nonprofit that sets standards for electric systems all over the continent. SDG&E has gotten a lot of criticism this year for rate increases. How much have consumer rates gone up and why? Yeah, they have gone up, no doubt about it. The average residential electricity rate in San Diego uh, Gas and Electric Service Territory went up on January 1st, 7.8%, and natural gas went up 24.6%. The big reason why there was that such a big jump in natural gas bills was because there have been constraints in the natural gas system, and the price of natural gas has gone up all across the country. And you're also seeing this globally as well. Even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Europe was really feeling some major constraints in their natural gas systems. Even before the invasion, 
Europeans were paying four or five times more than they were paying in just the last couple of years on natural gas. With all the changes that are included in the Path to Net Zero roadmap, the utility predicts costs may not go up much for consumers. Now, how is that possible? That's a very good question. And that's what I posed to SDG&E executives when they released this. If we're talking about these massive increases in the amount of solar, battery storage, wind energy, how is that not going to result in higher prices every month for utility customers? And basically, they were able to explain it by saying that this is really dependent. If you want to make sure that utility bills don't go through the roof, it's really dependent on consumers who are able to adopt to higher electricity usage. So the report looked at the amount of residents pay each year for energy. And included in that was how much gasoline they put in their cars and what that expense is. So while electricity bills would go up, the gasoline expenses, if, you're, if you've adopted electric vehicle, zero emission vehicle, they would go down. The lower expenses on gasoline would offset the higher expenses in the utility bills. At least that's the theory. Also, sdg sees more electricity, more consumption going into the system, but not going as fast as the pace of demand. And that means they don't have to build out their system as much because of the consumption increase. So all those things together, they say, at least in theory, that utility bills, if you're able to make these changes to electricity, electrifying basically everything inside your home and also your car, that you'd be able to pay roughly the same in 2045 as you do now. And what do utility watchdog groups have to say about this plan? Well, I talked to the Protect Our Communities Foundation, and they've been a longtime critic of SDG&E, and they dismissed the study as a, quote, a wish list. And they said that one of the big reasons why they didn't like it was because Protect Our Communities Foundation said, yes, SDG&E wants to have natural gas in their system because they sell natural gas. That's part of their utility structure. And they also criticized the dependence or the increase that this report asked for in hydrogen because they're very skeptical about whether hydrogen by 2045 will be the know-all, be-all, and end-all that SDG thinks that it might be. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune energy reporter Rob Nicoleski. Rob, thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. For more than two years now, the closure of the U.S.-Mexico border to most asylum seekers has left migrants in limbo. For young people especially, that means months without school or any way to fill their days. One organization in Tijuana is trying to enrich the lives of young migrants by giving them a place to learn and deal with the mental toll their journeys have taken on them. From Tijuana, reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler has more. I'm in a canyon filled with informal housing a mile south of the U.S.-Mexico border. Farm animals share space around a stream filled with household trash. For over two years, hundreds of migrants have crowded into a network of shelters here. On this morning, behind a wooden fence along the canyon, there's classical music playing as a teacher readies art supplies for her students. At the school called The Nest, Many of the teachers and all of the students are migrants looking to enter the United States whenever that becomes an option. Ten-year-old Gabriel is one of the first through the door and gives his teachers a huge hug. He's especially excited because tomorrow is his birthday. 
He migrated to Tijuana with his mother and four-year-old brother from Michoacan, Mexico in August. Michoacan is experiencing incredible levels of violence, as the state government has ceded almost all control to organized crime. Gabriel started at The Nest in September. He tells me at The Nest what he likes most is the opportunity to help his friends learn. He says his school in Michoacan was larger. The Nest can be a bit cramped, but he likes this one better. His favorite subject right now is math. Gabriel's math teacher today is 33-year-old Walter Orlando Campos, who fled Honduras. He was an elementary school teacher there for over a decade, teaching every subject. He said he never wanted to leave Honduras, but the political crisis there gave rise to unchecked gang violence, and he saw no other option but to leave. A father of his friend was recently killed, days after receiving threats from gangs. He's been in Tijuana since July. At the Nest, he's able to earn money as a teacher and continue to help students, his life's work. It's also helped his own mental health after he uprooted his life. He says when he got to Tijuana, he didn't have any happiness. He couldn't enjoy anything. But once he found the nest, he was refreshed. The children give off such positivity. Every morning, they start with a song greeting every student to the school. Right now, there are nest locations serving migrants in Greece, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Zimbabwe, and here in Tijuana, starting in 2018. The idea, says CEO Lindsay Weissert, is to give children a break from the stress of migration. All children deserve to feel valued, and all children deserve to have a space where they can just be children, um, away from adult conversations where past violence against them may be retold. Right now, there are thousands of migrant children living in Tijuana. The Biden administration says it plans to end a policy next month that has stopped virtually all asylum processing, meaning the months and years of waiting might soon be over. But that probably won't end regional migration patterns that have been building in recent years, especially among Central Americans. So now, the nest is expanding. Soon, they'll serve kids from 3 to 10 years old. For Doris, who fled domestic violence in Guerrero with her daughter, the nest is giving her a chance to feel proud again, especially when the kids call out to her on the street. The nest hopes to finish its expansion later this spring. That was Max Rivlin-Nadler reporting for the California Report in Tijuana. Getting mental health care in North County is now as easy as getting an oil change or a nail appointment. A new crisis center in Vista opened in October of last year and is the first standalone crisis center in San Diego. It's already become the second busiest center in the county. It offers mental health care services on a walk-in basis. The new approach highlights how important accessibility is. So what does it mean for the future of mental health care in San Diego? Well, here to answer that and other questions is Paul Sisson, healthcare reporter with the San Diego Union-Tribune. Paul, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. So how is the approach of Exodus Vista unique from how the county has been approaching mental health care treatment? Uh, right. Well, I, I suppose we should start with the idea of these crisis stabilization centers. It's kind of a technical term, but these locations uh, have 
recliners instead of beds, and uh, patients can stay in them if they're in crisis for up to 23 hours. At that point, the, the folks who run them have to decide whether or not they need to be admitted to a locked uh, hospital uh, ward or whether they, they're okay to go home. So, so they provide kind of a, um, a landing spot for folks who are having a mental health crisis to get some initial treatment and get a nice assessment of their condition uh, before they end up in a, in a more constrained environment. So uh, the county has been using these for several years now, but to date only attached to major hospitals that have generally uh, inpatient units as well as uh, adding on these crisis centers. So the idea is that you can kind of move from one to the other if you need to. Uh, the one in Vista is the first time the county uh, has funded a project that's not uh, directly attached to a hospital. Uh, so, so that's the big difference here. And how many patients has Exodus Vista treated since it opened its doors? And, and where would these patients have gone otherwise? Uh, it's about 1,400 patients. Uh, we, we didn't uh, get the number from the county through March. Uh, the numbers we got were only through February, and, and it was uh, nearly 1,400 in that period. But these folks uh, generally, before this facility opened in October, uh, you know, folks from coastal uh, North County who say were picked up on what they call a 5150 hold when a person might be uh, declared to be a danger to themselves or others, uh, they would be transported by law enforcement uh, all the way out to Escondido, and in many cases, we're told all the way down to the county facility uh, on Rosecrans in, the, in San Diego's Midway District. So, uh, you know, this could be a long time uh, on the road for law enforcement and, and for the patients as well. And you write that the center was seeing a lot of patients from the get-go. What strategies did they take in letting the community know about the center and who it was for? It's a company uh, out of L.A. called Exodus, Exodus Recovery uh, that has done a lot of these centers uh, up and down California and in other states as well, as I understand it. Uh, and, uh, you know, they they had already been doing uh, other treatment in the area. So they, they did about a month's worth of outreach, uh, just talking to churches, uh, law enforcement, uh, all the different places uh, where they know they might encounter people who need their services. Uh, so they, they did a fair amount of early outreach just to let people know that they're there. And how has law enforcement been impacted by this approach? Well, we talked to uh, the, the Oceanside Police Department, which is uh, one of the larger police departments in the county and, and certainly the largest in, in North County. And they, they were talking about having just a massive uh, reduction in the amount of time that their officers uh, are spending on these cases. The key there is that uh, when they bring someone in, they're no longer waiting in line at, at an emergency room with a lot of other uh, emergency patients who might be suffering a broken arm or a heart attack or what have you. Uh, this facility is physically in a different location, and so they're able to go in and hand off directly to uh, clinicians who, who are specialized in this treatment, and that's, uh, that's all that this facility is serving. So it kind of creates a second place uh, for law enforcement to hand off. And, and, uh, and one captain I was talking to said that, you know, they, they might spend an entire shift trying to hand uh, one patient off at a hospital, but they can do it in, in 15 to 30 minutes uh, at one of these standalone centers. What do we know about the economic impacts of crisis care centers? Are, are they more expensive than more traditional options? 
Uh, well, from what we can tell, you know, it hasn't been super aggressively studied, but the studies that I found uh, really seem to indicate that it can be cheaper just because you're preventing, you know, longer hospital stays uh, in, a, in a locked facility for, say, 72 hours or 14 days. Those are common treatment times in an in a inpatient facility. Uh, so by being able to avoid those and, and uh, you know, have some folks, you know, get 23 hours just to, to maybe get back on their medication get some therapy and get connected to some outpatient services back out in the community. Uh, the thought is that, that by doing that, you can actually lower the cost by, by not having as many people having long hospital stays. Hmm. And what are county health officials saying about the center? I mean, can this approach be replicated? Uh, yeah, they, they certainly think that it can. Uh, you know, this is, this is one of the cornerstones to their ongoing uh, remaking of our local behavioral health system. Uh, Dr. Luke Bergman uh, heads that effort up. And, uh, you know, they are really planning to push more of these crisis centers out deeper into the community, providing uh, people more direct access than they've had before. So I think you'll see a lot more of these as time goes by and as they kind of analyze what's going on up in, uh, in coastal North County and kind of try to replicate that in other parts of the county. What do you think having this mental health care uh, facility so accessible ultimately means for how we approach mental health care? Yeah, that's a really perceptive question, and it's it's right at the core of of, the, of this entire system. Uh, generally, you've had to wait uh, until your uh, condition got quite severe uh, before you would really be able to get into the system. You know, there wasn't much what you might call urgent care for mental health. Uh, generally, they were waiting for someone to call nine one one to to get picked up by law enforcement or what have you, or you would en- end up you know waiting for an appointment uh, with your therapist you know, and, and it might take a long time to get an appointment. This facility in Vista allows people to walk in and, and get some service before they're at a crisis stage. And that seems to be very key in terms of helping the entire system operate in a more preventive model instead of waiting for things to get bad before you get help. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune healthcare reporter, Paul Sisson. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. San Diego-based music journalist Jim Ruland's new book, Corporate Rock Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SST Records, is a study of a single punk rock record label, SST, and the bands like Black Flag, Sonic Youth, and Dinosaur Jr. that were integral to its story. KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans spoke with Ruland about the book. Corporate Rock Sucks is your sixth book. Two of your other books have focused on punk rock and You have also spent over 20 years writing about punk and music for zines like Razor Cake. Can you talk a little bit about how your experience shaped how you looked at this impact of one record label? Absolutely. It all started with zines for me because that's where I learned how to write for an audience, but also how to 
you know, literally get in the van before a gig and interview a band and deal with all of that and all the chaos that goes with that. Um, I started writing record reviews like most music writers do. And uh, it was really all about access to the music that I love. Okay, so let's talk about Greg Ginn, who was this young person in the late 1970s who planted the seeds for not just a record label and a band, but this entire scene, the L.A. South Bay punk scene. So Greg Ginn was uniquely poised to launch uh, a record label because he had this business called SST Electronics, and it was a mail-order electronics company that he started in his early teens. And that gave him a foundation of knowledge in terms of, you know, how to how do you print a catalog? How do you organize your mailing list? How do you connect and communicate with your customers? All of which would prove invaluable when SST Electronics became SST Records. And it was really done out of necessity because as much as he wanted to bring Black Flag to Hollywood and get into the LA punk scene, they really weren't interested. So he had to do it on his own. And what kind of person does it take to go from like an electronics mail order company to something like these bands and this label? Well, I think most people who are drawn to music, particularly extreme music, um, they're really focused on the music themselves, you know, creating music, bringing it, you know, playing it with their bandmates, bringing it to the masses. Gin was, I don't want to use the word too loosely, but kind of a genius in that he really changed the way people thought about punk rock with his style and aggressive uh, kind of music, but also in the way that he, he paved the way for the touring network by getting in the van and bringing Black Flag to literally all over America when only a handful of other bands had even tried to do stuff like that, like DOA up in Vancouver. Um, in America, Greg Ginn and Black Flag were the first. So how was L.A. punk unique from other movements in music history? What I think is really special about L.A. punk is that obviously it wasn't first, right? It, it wasn't New York. It wasn't London. It kind of was this uh, third wave of punk rock that really flourished here for a lot of different reasons because it really took off not only in Hollywood, but also in the suburbs who were really bored with the corporate rock that was on on the radio. But what was also really cool about that fact that they were kind of late to the party is that getting signed to a major record label deal really wasn't an option. There were a few exceptions like X uh, was signed, but like all the early bands in New York, for example, were snapped up by major labels. So in LA, you had these bands had to create their own scene and they really had to do it themselves. Over the course of the book, we see SST grow from relatively small, almost self-indulgent project to there are major struggles, they sign major bands, they have lean years, and then hugely prolific years. What was the most surprising thing you uncovered during your research? Well, there are so many eras of SST, and I think if you're a fan of the label, like where you where you experience the music on that label kind of defines the label for you. But they were not afraid of change. There's a lot of 
uh, labels that came out that still operate today that are very focused on their genre. They have a very distinctive sound and that all the bands sound similar. That wasn't true of SST records. They're completely very, you know, varied sounds, varied genres, and very willing to experiment. So I think in every era and sometimes with every band that I researched, there were all kinds of interesting surprises, um, you know, waiting to be uncovered, um, especially towards the latter and the early 90s when Greg Inn and SST, you know, first had, uh, you know, they they put out Soundgarden before anybody else, which surprises a lot of people who don't realize that. But that was really built on the back of the relationship that the label had with Screaming Trees when Mark Pickerel, the drummer, gave Greg in a demo of a, a Soundgarden performance. So it was really kind of fascinating in the way that this little label in Southern California that was starting to explode really anticipated the scene that came out of the Northwest in a big way. So at the end of the book, the index of SST releases is 12 pages long. I have to ask you, Jim, what's one SST album that has stuck with you? There are so many. Um, I would say uh, any of the releases by St. Vitus, especially the self-titled debut, is one that I still listen to uh, quite frequently. In fact, I don't know why, but I like listening to that when I'm on an airplane. Uh, there's something about the heaviness of the music and being up in the air goes really well together. But again, the just the fact that St. Vitus, you know, had put four or five records out with SST in the mid '80s at a time when hair metal was all over MTV. Um, you know, this fast, loose, and very commercial style of heavy metal. And here's St. Vitus, this band that is a throwback to Black Sabbath that plays slow and sludgy, and today are considered one of the godfathers of, of doom metal. Jim, thank you so much. You're very welcome. That was KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon Evans speaking with Jim Ruland, author of the new book, Corporate Rock Sucks. To celebrate the release, Ruland will appear at the book Catapult on Tuesday at 7 p.m. and at Chula Vista's Three Punk Ales on Saturday at 4 p.m. And to hear Jim's playlist of music produced by SST Records, you can go to our website, kpbs.org. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.